Hi, and welcome to the Since 71 podcast. My name's Tom Hussey, and I'm here with Catherine Paquette, Hannah Lichtenstein, and our special super guest, uh, Kira Cormack. I did, I did, I just, did I just butcher it straight away? No, you're no, fine. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Disclaimer, we are recording this in four different countries of three different time zones. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, I appreciate you've spoken a lot more in recent days, um, despite being very vocal about, or according, you know, from Catherine putting me into your, uh, pointing me to your blog, um, that you haven't, you know, once you pressed go, everything was out there. Yeah. That, uh, you went through. Um, and that was historically with the Vancouver Whitecaps, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, and Canadian Women's National Team. Okay. So what we wanted to do today, um, more so, was obviously touch on these areas, but also look a little bit more into what solutions that are already in place and what solutions need to be in place a lot quicker moving forwards. Yeah. Um, I will move on to yourself. I think, think, you know, all of us have probably experienced this this situation where because in our circles we're known as like knowledgeable about women's soccer that are like friends, family, anybody that's seen the news. Now we become the person they're asking about. And it's like, yeah, clearly we're all exhausted because we've talked about it so many times because we're that person in so many people's lives and it's become mainstream news now. I don't know how you two feel about it, but, um, one of the things I found exhausting over the last week, especially like covering a lot of the stuff out of the NWSL is that a lot of this has been known for years, um, but it's kind of all been projected forward in its own kind of football me too movement in like one big week of suddenly, I mean, I, in a way it is a positive thing because suddenly there is actual interest and there's actual an actual light being shone upon what in many situations has existed for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, But I agree with you, Hannah, like on the other side, like it, it is tiring. Um, Not just the last week, but in general that these events seem to have a pattern that replicates themselves across different leagues, across different countries um, with no actual coherent solution being put forward and more reactions um, to what happens um, yeah, over and over and over. Sorry to hijack your, your intro there, Tom. That's my no, bad. no, absolutely. Give it to the moderator. No, no, no. I was just going to say that, you know, um, I think Kara's here from Thailand right now. So like um, over the last few, over the last week, um, are you, happier that more people are finding their voice as well as the the reports that they are um i think yeah absolutely in the sense that just from personal experience i know the lightness that i felt after that i i i didn't even realize the weight that i was carrying so i think from that perspective um i think that that was a really um good part of it in the sense of, you know, I watched the clip of Mana and Sinead on, um, I think the Today Show and just, just honestly feeling so happy for them, like knowing what it's like to, 
have something happen, have it not handled properly, just kind of been pushed out the door um, and then have to sit in it for six years and have something that mattered, you know, it, like for them, it's, it's, it's like Catherine mentioned, it's the same pattern, like over and over again. So I, a lot of it was really familiar um, listening to what they had to say. But um, again, the positive is that I think it's, it's good what's happening right now. I think um, I'm not surprised by any of it. And, um, and someone even said to me that they felt it was a journalist, like a month before this whole thing broke, said to me, you know, it's really weird in women's soccer how there's not been anything that's come forward. And I've always found that the sort of darkest secrets are found in the quietest places. So um, I couldn't help but think about that as these stories were coming forward. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, again, like I mentioned briefly before we started recording that this isn't going to be um, isolated by any means I feel um, which is really sad because um, um, me and one of the other um, hosts Stu are one of three male coaches for an under 16 girls football team mm-hmm. and I mean they don't and maybe they some of them see it but most of them aren't really interested in <laughs> women's football as, as such in the grander scheme well, Tom, I'm uh, interested actually because in thinking about the sort of like how do we move forward hmm. conversation, one you know thing that's been coming to my head constantly is like what sort of trainings and workshops are youth coaches getting? Are they just having to click through like sexual harassment slides that are like don't invite a player to the room? You know, because there's so many. I think of that iceberg when we were having these conversations about racial justice. And, you know, the iceberg of like oppression or uh, systemic justice, there's like the very top that's above the water. And that's like the stuff that you know you're not supposed to do as a coach, right? Like you, you, most coaches know you're not supposed to do that stuff. But there's so much of that iceberg, you know, below the water. And I'm curious, you know, from your perspective as as a youth coach, like, are there trainings being done? Like, are there, besides the X's and O's of what you need to learn to get a license or be qualified? Um, what is the safe lift in the UK, the FA safeguarding kind of covers parts of that. And there is, a, I've got a manual down there somewhere that has it all in, but then it's any of the quizzes, like any kind of one out of 20 question quiz, you know, so it, it is common sense. But that doesn't mean that things don't get missed. Are there any background um, checks? Yeah, yeah, we have we have a um, a police check, a criminal record check, basically. Okay. Um, again, I don't know what that can really show if things are hidden in the right way. This sounds it sounds terrible. I'm saying things like this, but it, and no, no, but it's it, 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 yeah. it's true. Like you know, the main. Um, story that kind of instigated everything that's that's come out in the, the last week is the story with with Paul Riley and, and Manishim and Sinead fairly coming forward and, and really speaking about their experience and in this in his situation like you know we're talking about mental coercion sexual coercion sexual abuse is any of that you know being how difficult it is to actually prosecute sexual abuse like would any of that ever show up on a criminal record? You know, would any of that ever be prosecutable to the point that if he was not as known as he is and he showed up elsewhere, it would actually be brought to light? You know, this is a man who who who, who dealt with adults, but 
I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's a far stretch to say that, you know, th- what is actually prosecutable and would show up in a police background is very different than um, what can be equally damaging to young girls, but won't end up ever seeing the light of day, like judiciously. If Does that make any sense? Yeah, 100%. There was the case, um, Mark Sampson, the former um, England coach, um, you know, it all came to light about the way he was speaking um, about Enya Luko and some other players from um, uh, African backgrounds. But England let him go because of apparently a, a former relationship he had with a player at Bristol. And or that's what they said. So moving from one subject to another, they decided to get rid of him on that basis. And he's since worked in lower league men's roles, but hasn't gone back to women's football as far as I'm aware. So that in that same boat, you know, some things are being looked at a bit more cautiously, I guess, but that wasn't their main focus, I feel. I got got like the e-license in the U.S., which was like the very, very bottom of the coaching licenses you can get. And I I was just thinking back and, you know, in the two to three days, like all we did was like on-field stuff, concussion stuff, sure. But I just don't remember a lot of time spent on that. And I just, I know that, you know, I really do think we're going to see reform and I'm holding out hope for that. But um, I think that it's going to start at like, just yeah that level of like anybody that's gonna be coaching girls soccer is gonna need to go through some i don't know training i hope so i hope that these things come to a light Um, i mean i don't know if it's necessarily comparable but if we're going across sports like i'm a ski instructor and i've instructed children and and adults for, for years and um i got my first actual training with regards to harassment two years ago you know, but even there, like the background checks that we get are really not extensive. And there have been times that I've kind of wondered, because you do see, you know, you, you, you meet colleagues sometimes and you go, okay, these are people who are being literally given other people's children. And as a ski instructor, you know, I went on mountains that were like huge. I ski instructed in the West. I ski instructed out East, you know, you literally leave with these people's children and, and it, it always kind of, it, it, it was only until I actually got that training that I thought like, it is, it's a bit absurd that this has never been part of my training in the past being how much control I've had over kids that I might only know for an hour or I might know for an entire season. Um, I, I don't think this is a problem that's isolated to football. I think how we we properly train individuals who deal with both children and adults um and who are in positions of power with regarding to them actually playing or participating um i think we've we've only started scraping the tip of the iceberg of what needs to be done to ensure that they are properly trained for positions and they're properly monitored and background checked to make sure that people aren't put in abusive or children aren't put in dangerous situations yeah i mean there's I think it was something in Lisa Devanna's um, article or one of the, the interviews said about how a lot of the uh, terms of like, you know, that's just how it is. And those kind of things that trickle down into other areas of the, um, the youth setups per se 
um, and teams just this these sort of things are kind of accepted. Um, oh, I mean, yeah. It, you know, it, so, well, the the Devana article I actually reported on it is is yeah. a little bit difficult at this point to really go into the details. And, and first of all, like you, we have to believe victims that come forward. Um, but what makes her article very different to the ones that were put forward by like Molly Hensley Clancy with the Washington Post and by like Megan Linhan and um, Katie Strang with The Athletic is that it's kind of the abuse allegations are being fed by News Corp in Australia kind of in drips. So they may, they put out one article yesterday where they, they kind of put these blanket accusations, but and they only really gave one corroborative situation um so it's a bit more difficult to talk about devana's case but i don't think it's a far stretch to say that cultures are built within sport and that if those cultures you know in in the same way that we were just talking if you don't have a background check or any training on how to deal um in in a position of power how to deal with children and a culture starts to emerge and you have players that do not feel comfortable in that culture, there's not necessarily avenues for them to come forward and, and express that. And, and that's one of the things that was within the original article that that she had felt that the culture that she was within um, was toxic, essentially. You articulated what I meant to say about culture yeah. a lot better than I managed to get out of my mouth. I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, so moving forwards is, Obviously, we've sort of touched on this, that we this is kind of the, the avenue we want to go for of how things can get better. Training, um, access for players. I mean, is it the, uh, the NWSL Players Association has started out, uh, I believe, a helpline um, to be, you know, be as an outlet for um, anyone needing to talk or, you know, share or just, be, just get support now. And, and that's not the league or US soccer, that's the Players Association because they are obviously on the ground. They're seeing what's happening as much as anyone else is, but they're the only ones doing anything about it. But you can't have the organizations be the group you're reporting to because, again, just from sort of seeing how prevalent, it's it, it's not... It's not like, you know, obviously this focuses on women's soccer this week, but it's gymnastics last week. It's like even, you know, it's this the abuse is like not limited to one country, one sport, one gender, whatever. It's a, it's a power dynamics. And I think the biggest problem across the board is that, that there's to this point, I think athletes just show up to play. They're not thinking I'm going to get abused or I'm going to be in an awful situation. Um, and then you're in the situation and then you have nowhere to go. And um, I know the case even in Canada, and I've obviously become a lot more savvy to um, just being more aware of all these things, but like the whistleblower hotline, the last time that I checked. So like after everything that happened in our situation in 2020, if something happened to you, if you called the whistleblower hotline for Canada soccer, the legal counsel of Ontario soccer was the, was the organization that was running that hotline. So I am literally as somebody brave enough to step forward, calling a hotline that is run by a group that their mandate is to legally protect the organization. And again, unless you're in the space, you wouldn't be aware of that. But like the lack of integrity that is just 
like so prevalent through the whole system on the organizational side of it, because at the end of the day, they care about protecting themselves. They can have all the nice, you know, the, whether it's the Olympic committee or whatever club team or whatever league, and it's all the players are so inspiring and all this kind of thing. At the end of the day, they're an entity. And if their employee is deemed a sexual predator or whatever, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen to them. And so they want to know the information so they can control the narrative and twist it. And that's a huge part of the problem with this. And this is why I think it's good to see the NWSL Players Association. They should be, um, you know, assuming that they have integrity and they're, you know, they're separate and independent and about protecting the players. Like that is the group that should be reported to because the idea is, is that they're about protecting the players and not, you know, calling the hotline that North Carolina Courage set up because it's basically just going to go into the organization who's probably going to cover it up, you know? And, and I think also we have to realize that when somebody calls and reports, they're already in such a traumatic state themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like it's hard enough to come forward. And I think that that's another part of it that I don't hear getting spoken about very often, but like victims like Mona and Sinead had to like identify themselves, you know, as individual people um, and all the vulnerability and all reliving the trauma and all those sorts of things. Whereas, um, you know, the, the Merritt Paulson and Gavin Wilkinson, unless you follow women's soccer, it's just the Portland thorns fired uh, Paul O'Reilly and they can hide they have the protection of the organization, but the victims have to stand on their own. And that's a hugely traumatic thing, even in and of itself. So, yeah. 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 I think moving forward to, you mentioned those two names, there still is like rot that has not been cut out. So that's like very, very, very short term. uh, What needs to happen in order to move forward is there are still people mentioned in that story that, you know, need to be held accountable. I think like, one of the issues that arose in the NWSL is that there weren't any anti-harassment um, rules in place until this year um, to actually protect the players. There was absolutely nothing in, in the player handbook until the players themselves led by Alex Morgan actually petitioned, um, you know, got together petitioned to have that included. But one of the things that I find worrisome is um there's two individuals that were let go this year. One, um, Elisa Lahu, which was the general manager of um, uh, Gotham. Gotham FC. Um, and she was let go underneath these new anti-harassment policies, which she denies. Um, and the other one, they don't specifically say it because it's anti-harassment, but it's Christy Hawley, who's a man who was with the ex-head coach of Racing Louisville. But in both those situations, the anti-harassment policies um, keep the reasoning behind the firing confidential. And, you know, we, sh- we victims of abuse or harassment should be, you know, their, their names should not, and their, their stories should not, like, that should remain private. But if an employee, so a coach, a general manager, is fired underneath an anti-harassment policy in any company, and in, in, in any sport, any but any, any company in general, they should no longer have the privilege of having those reasons kept confidential. And and the reason that it's, I believe that it's especially important in sport, uh, or when it comes to abuse, is that 
victims of abuse are very afraid of coming forward and often it's because they feel like they are alone and if you if you let somebody go who has harassed or abused somebody but you'd never state the reason there may be other victims out there that will never know that they are not alone you will never truly be able to solve the problem of harassment if you don't get as much information about how this came about and covering up even if if you fire them and you say that it's for cause and like when Chrissy Hawley was was fired it was the first time the league had ever actually stipulated for cause which for a coach which is a big step but the next step is they actually have to stipulate why that what that cause was if that cause was because he was in fact fired because of abuse or harassment because if not you're just going to keep other incidents incidences under wraps you know, just my opinion but it's a first step but i don't think it goes far enough we have to other players other staff other potential employers have to know what happened yeah. i don't if you've done this you do you no longer have the right for that confidentiality as the abuser well, and people say privacy because I was saying this like the week after I came forward that there needs to be some sort of registry that keeps track of those sorts of things. Like, you know, in the province that I grew up in, in Canada and British Columbia, like there's a teacher's college. So like if a teacher gets fired for doing something, it's, you know, that's in their record in the teacher's college. And I think someone like kind of pushed back to me and was like, oh, well, privacy laws. But like, I, I, I think that again, you know, just like a teacher has people in a vulnerable position and they, they have the power to abuse um, their position. Like, I think the second you take a role, whether it's a coach, whether minors, like whenever there's a power imbalance, I think you have to sign off on privacy. And, um, and, and I think that, you know, it's, it's almost like we have vaccine passports in Canada now, like to, or in BC where I'm from, like to go into restaurants, but it's almost like you need to have some kind of a safety passport to be able to, um, to work with vulnerable athletes and children. And that should just be a given. And I think, um, to this point, you know, sometimes it almost feels like perpetrators built the system because, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is kind of logical when you're looking at it, you know, like it, it, again, it, it should, it, there's no way that coaches should be let go and have it be swept under the rug, like that that opportunity even exists. So I think that, again, when you're thinking of solutions that could potentially put off somebody or make them think twice before they were going to abuse their power, like if they knew there was a potential that A, they're going to lose their job and B, everyone's going to know why they, they lost their job. Um, and they, and they also know that the organization won't protect them because it's going to harm the organization and they're going to have to do something about it. Like, again, I think that that's another way to start getting this stuff under control because without that, it's just, it's just everyone's at the end of the day, like everyone's protecting themselves and, and, um, they're always going to do that ahead of doing the right thing. If there's like one thing I've learned through all this. One point that came up that is like related to what I've been thinking about in terms of moving forward, but has been difficult. I think for me to think about as like a queer woman who knows how like queer woman soccer is and is like proud of that fact is like, there are abusers who are women. And I think we need to like expand our thinking to include that. And I know that that's coming up a little bit in the least of Vanna stuff. Um, and with potentially the Elise LaHue stuff. 
Um, and it's hard because I have like some defensiveness around that. I'm sure a lot of people have defensiveness around that. Like you don't want to get into this like queer women are predators in the in the shower, you know, in the showers or something. But like, yeah, the language of abuser needs to we need to have that image be more than just a man that looks a certain way, because that is how other people get away with abuse, because you have such an idea of what the abuser will look like. And it's more than than that. Yeah, locker room talk isn't just for men. It extends to women as well. And yeah, I, I mean, I understand where you're you're coming from. Like, you don't want to venture in. Th there may be a tendency for some to venture into an area that is, especially when we're talking about queer athletes into a homophobic area, but we also have to respect, be respectful that all athletes have to feel safe in every environment. Well, and that abusers come in all shapes and forms as well. Yeah. You know, this is a, a this is a complete intersectional thing, you know, race, uh, sexual orientation, gender, it doesn't matter. Everybody should feel safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So what, what more can we as a group of people who, um, aren't in positions of authority to make these changes. What can we suggest? What more can Catherine's got a hand raised or think pen raised? You've got a list of things ready to go. I'm assuming. No, what it's going to seem like a tangent at the beginning, but there is a point to this. Um, you know, there are organizations that are um, that oversee sport. Uh, that oversee certain aspects of sport uh, to keep its integrity. Specifically, the the World Anti-Doping Agency, which was set up after the UNESCO International Convention Against Doping in Sport, um, operates independently of sport um, for the simple reason that they deemed there was a conflict of interest if sporting organizations themselves, who had been proven in the past, some of them, to, in, to cover up doping or even encourage it, um, to have them try to police this. Um, the same goes with the U.S. Office of uh, the the U.N. Office of uh, Drugs and Crimes with regards to sports. They have two resolutions that U.N. Resolu uh, resolutions that were added, where um, they're allowed to take action with regards to corruption and match fixing. You know, again, this is put forward, and it, it is independent of national bodies, and it is put forward for the integrity of sport. Um, I spoke to. Um, or I corresponded with Global Athlete Today, which is a, a, an athlete-led movement um, to try to promote the um, to, to pr promote athlete rights and to empower athletes to be equal partners. I spoke to um, their or corresponded with the Director General Rob Kohler, and one of the things that he pointed out, which is very, which I think is important to add, is that all these athletes' rights violations are a direct breach of the UN Con Declaration of Human Rights. And the UN and the UN Convention of the, on the Rights of the Child. This is a primary reason we, as in global athlete, are pushing for the International Olympic Committee and international sport to embed the UN Declaration of Human Rights into the Olympic Charter and, by extension, the Paralympic Charter. Um, you know, and this is an interesting one. Like we have. We have laws within sports that have been put forward to protect its integrity with regards to doping, with regards to corruption, with regards to match fixing. But we have yet to embed laws to truly protect athletes. And 
you know, like Kira has shown, like, you know, we've seen incidences in gymnastics at Rugby Canada recently, but um, had a whole bunch of its players come forward with abuse. Now, these allegations with regards to the NWSL that when they started was actually run underneath the guidance of you in soccer. Like you can go across a number of sports and find incidences of alleged abuse. And it is mind boggling to me that we do not have an international agency that works separate, that is separate from international bodies, but whose main reasoning for existence is to investigate and to prosecute um, abuses, whether they be verbal, sexual, any type of abuse within the sporting industry. You know, the World Anti-Doping Agency has the right the, to ban athletes. They did so with Samir Nasri for a year and a half. They also have the right to ban entire nations, which is why Russia hasn't competed again underneath its, its flag for, I think it's going to the last Olympics and the next one, you know, the entire Russian Olympic committee is currently banned and they have to participate. You know, so we have given other agencies the right to investigate the right to monitor and the right to actually act within this world of sports for the integrity. But we haven't even, there doesn't seem to be any discussion about, creating an independent agency that is separate from bodies to protect athletes. And that to me is mind boggling, but it is necessary. You know, again, like Kira showed, like so many people showed governing bodies and national associations for sport have a direct conflict of interest when it comes. And the same goes for franchises The you know, the, the same goes for clubs. There is a direct conflict of interest with when it comes to, investigating allegations of abuse because the person you're investigating might be your employee the person you're investigating might even be the owner or yourself if you're the if you're the hr director this isn't where we should be putting our hopes to try to solve this problem i truly believe that we need a body that is independent to do it because what we've seen time and time again is that what is in place at the moment is not capable not only not capable of trying to bring out and uproot like abuse but also is complicit time and time again and allows patterns of behavior that keep predators that keep abusers in sports and hurt athletes time and time again across every sport every gender every intersectionality can i say something yeah um so just along those lines, like I'm a big believer that if there's a solution, like an obvious solution to the problem and it hasn't been done, that there's usually a reason behind it. And so what, again, sitting deep into this space and sort of being a bit of an analytical thinker, trying to understand exactly everything that you're saying, um, you know, the biggest thing is, again, like, let's just use the World Doping Agency as an example. So if they find an athlete guilty of doping, that's not hurting the organization from a legal standpoint. If a coach is found to be abusing players, now the athlete has the legal potential to sue and win money from that organization. So that's, that's the main reason why nothing has like been established because why would you, if I'm, if I'm a store, why would I set up 
if I have, you know, I have full control and full power, why would I set up something that would make me potentially legally liable? So that's where for me, like the next step in my thinking is that this is never going to happen. These things are never going to come from the organization. They're never going to set up the, there's no motivation for them to do it. So that's why like the more that I'm sitting in the space, the more that it's like the obvious solution is that athletes have to do it. And the other thing again, talking about a funding like perspective from it, because the second that you even let's just say with the safe sport in the US, it's funded by the Olympic Committee and by the government and same thing. So again, for them to, you know, properly investigate, and let's say they they pull up a whole bunch of creeps, well, now again, those athletes can sue the organization, and that's going to make it a precarious situation for them from a legal perspective and a financial perspective. So of course, they're not going to do that. But like, as you were talking, actually just popped into my head, which I haven't thought about before. But like, if I'm playing soccer in Canada, I send $5 or $6 from my registration to Canada soccer, or to BC soccer, whoever to register. And and I actually think when you're thinking about a funding perspective, like I think it should be coming from the athletes. So maybe that's a potential solution as well, where like, instead of the $10 going to Canada soccer, well, $2 goes into a safe sport organization that's set up as an entity outside of that, because the the funding piece is the big the big problem because everyone says where's the money coming from and that's again a good reason or a good way to sort of understand why the motivations behind like you're not going to piss off the person that's giving you the money is basically so i think again it needs to come from the athletes yeah i get what you mean but you know like the world the the original like my understanding is what originally precipitated the the world anti-doping agency was certain associations kind of pressing for it to occur, but also because this was proven to be quite, um, uh, to be part and parcel of, of a lot of sports and it needing to be rooted out. And one of the good things that we're starting to see in the last couple of years is that a lot of this abuse is coming to light. So kind of the same patterns that led to the WADA or WADA, you know, may lead it i'd also say that it it has been detrimental to some national organizations like the russian olympic committee can't compete you know yes their athletes are still there but even when we go to match fixing my understanding is there's people who've lost franchises and and who've who've been banned because of of match fixing that has been brought forward so you know to go back to um, my communications with global athlete like they talk about safe sport and they're like the current uh, safe sports structures are not fit for purpose. International leadership is required to right the wrongs for a safer environment for a- athletes. The status quo is failing. So we do that. There needs to be something in place that is independent of national bodies. Like I get what you mean. It might be difficult to set up and the motivation might not be there, but it's needed because we're seeing. This I happen agree. Time I never time. said it's not. Yeah. I'm just saying that okay. the reason why the organizations haven't put anything together is that it's a financial motivation for them because it's essentially setting them up to get sued. I'm definitely, I'm absolutely completely yeah. 125% in agreement that it okay. needs to happen a hundred percent. And I, I, but I, I'm just what I'm saying is, is that it's, this... it needs to be athlete led, not organization led. Oh no, no, no. This should be in no way led by the organizations. Like, there's a number that have shown that they are not competent to reacting to this, but also the organizations, franchises, clubs, they're the ones who, uh, who run and who are obviously the most prone to this happening because 
this is within their, it has to be done outside of their the, the, kind of their control to be truly independent. But yeah, like these ideas that somehow the organizations and the leagues and the clubs that have ha where this has happened are ultimately the solution. I, I just don't see that happening because there needs to be an independence when it comes to true. So if, if athletes are truly going to feel comfortable to come forward and speak, there needs to be an independence. I don't think it's a surprise that a lot of this came forward because they, they, they chose to, to go outside of, of the actual sporting bodies and go to journalists and use the power of the media as a way to fight this because where else could you go that is truly independent? I'm going to put forth a potential solution from a different angle. Okay. Listener, listener, you want to know what you can do to help change the culture and help put a stop to these horrific things that you've been reading. Go buy tickets and watch women's soccer. And I'm going to tell you why that's going to help. So, you know, obviously money talks, money makes the world go round. But, you know, as Kara's saying, like, if players are going to be best positioned and should be the ones advocating, you know, protecting their play, you know, their fellow players, which is quite the task, they shouldn't also be worried about coaching and doing all these side hustles and having to have bandwidth for, you know, having their career in soccer and then their four other careers and then also advocating, you know, for their teammates, like, the more money that comes into the sport, the more, let's say, a player might be able to, you know, be in these advocacy, like, headspaces and, like, abilities. And also, so many people working in women's soccer work part-time. So many work part-time. And even, you know, you might be working that part-time job for all the good reasons and you want to be helpful, but it's still part-time. Like, it's not the thing paying the bills. And if you have a part-time HR coordinator, a part-time, you know, whoever's handling these important sort of, I don't, yeah, cases or bits of information that are coming in and you're part-time, there's only so much you can do. Like there's only so much you can give. Um, and so I think that, you know, the more we start to infuse um, and can build you know, money coming into the sport, that that's like kind of indirectly going to be something that really, I don't know, is a great foundation for helping this sort of situation. Yeah, Catherine and I spoke about it um, earlier in the week when we were trying to figure out the best way to approach this podcast. And once it was all, well, early in the week, last week even. Sorry. Nope. I... Sorry. My uh, Apple Watch decided to chime in with some information there as well that it did understand. Um <laughs> And I sort of, one of my suggestions was, should we not just curtail the league now for the season? It's quite close to the end. Let's give the players some time to actually be out of the spotlight for a moment for any of that have come forwards or for any of that. that and, and I said, no, we need to support them. And that is by yeah, them doing yeah, their just, job. I mean, these poor players, they have, they have to coach after practice and go to practice and do inner, like, it's just, there's so much and there's no other athletes that are forced to like be spread in that sort of way. It's ridiculous. And as much as like, one of my reasons for t telling people about women's football is because of as much the players and their 
stories in their lives for a lot of ways are a lot more rich than any of their male counterparts for how they've even got to that place or what they're doing concurrently with their with their playing careers and it you know and then this sort of supports that that they need you know if this is their public eye um i'm losing my train of thought straight away um but <laughs> to to support these these players in the right way and they need you know you should be we should all be doing that irregardless um, well it's also like important to point out that the sort of pattern that coach riley had was he was targeting the, those on the fringes he was he was preying on the instability of the league the fact that there were so many players who were making twenty thousand dollars who could be cut at any instant and like their livelihood was gone um and that's like an interesting part of this it's because there's the league was so there's there's like no money in it but i think that that's where like a player like alex morgan like i have so much respect for her in terms of the fact that um you know she was the one that pushed for the anti-harassment she was the one that pushed for mana and Sinead to come forward and like i again sort of living that environment and and being a fringe player and seeing how little control you have I think you need those play like it shouldn't be a case like Alex Morgan should be able to just play soccer and not have to be some behind the scenes warrior but the reality is again when you're in these unstable situations like someone like Alex Morgan does have capital like social capital financial capital all the things so I think that that's again like I said you hope women's soccer and sport in general gets to a point that everybody can just play the sport and not have to worry but in these sorts of situations, like I think it can't be understated how important somebody with capital, like an athlete with capital steps up and advocates for other athletes, because absolutely the fact that like a Paul Riley would never have gone after an Alex Morgan because like there's, you know, he wouldn't stand a chance, but you go after a 21 year old that's just come out of college and looking to break it into the pro league or you, you know, which I think actually both players were like just fresh out of college when, um, when Paul Riley kind of came after them. So I think that, that that part of it, again, like you need those players with capital in the situation. They don't, I mean, they can, again, they can do whatever they want, but but I think that that's, it's just so impactful what Alex Morgan did. And, and um, I think it's a great example and something super positive out of the situation for sure. I do hope that this does help any future athletes that, need to speak up and have tried the avenues that are available for them and, and not gotten anything out of it. Um, because I do wonder if Alex Morgan isn't part of that story, if she's not on the couch beside Manisham for the today interview, like do does that like, does this, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm sure the story would have come out, but would the story have had the same reach um, as it did in the same way that like, you know, the Devana article, you know, the, she's not the only athlete. So far, there have been two. There's been Raleigh Dobson. And today there was another article about Bronwyn Nutley um, also having a uh, feeling that they were in a specifically predatory environment and, and being subjected to stuff. And I'm wondering, like, if it's just those two players and you don't have the second highest capped, second highest goal scorer in Australian history who's been, like, kind of as would this story have seen the light of day or seen traction um you know because 
I, I, I don't want to keep pointing to you, Kira, but like the, the, the being Canadian and, and having seen these things happen a number of times in Canada, the, the part that's really worrying and saddening and disconcerting is that the voices aren't heard. You know, we know the allegations are there and our media and just in general, the, the, you, the, the avenues that should be covering this and should be asking questions are not doing that. Do you know, know why? Like what's, cause I obviously it's, you look at the U S and there's all these investigative stuff. Like I, that's, I'm just curious as like a fellow Canadian, if you have a theory on that, cause I, well, curious. my theory is because we as or athlete female athletes in Canada are disempowered to start off with, you know, that we don't have a, a female sporting culture here. Like one of the reasons that I'm a Canadian and that I cover the WSL and that my main job is covering sport in Australia is because, you know, they have professional basketball, professional Aussie rules. They have a NRL that's kind of getting there. They have professional cricket. They have professional soccer. Like they have professional netball. Like there's, that's there's all these point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's all these, whereas in Canada, we have the Toronto Six who are semi-professional and the majority of with Toronto Six a hot, is a, a nice hockey team. It's the only women's team in, in Canada. I mean, there's the White Caps and there's a couple of WSL teams, but that is kind of even close to having something of a maybe professional status. And the reality is that league, um, the PEH, um, which used to be the NWHL, um, that league is boycotted by most of the best professional hockey players in the world because they don't believe it's professional enough. And, and they, they're, they're actually trying to push for a league where they can have adequate playing conditions and adequate salaries to be able to survive. Um, there's nothing here. So we don't talk about women's sports in our discords. We don't really cover women's sports. Um, even though like the gold medal game and the last Olympics showed that there is a demand for it. Um, it's just not pushed forward. I think it's because our country is big and the majority of our population is stuck on the American border. And so from a marketing and a cost perspective, it's a really hard country to cover. You know, Australia is quite similar, but it's isolated and it has a long history of its own sports, its own things. Whereas we have this behemoth that's the United States beside us and it, it kind of like its voice often overtakes the Canadian voice. Yeah, I was going to say like, not to sound fucked up, but like as an American, like when I think of you guys, like culturally, like everyone, it's the jokes about how polite you are. Right. It's like, there's like a keeping, uh, there's like a politeness. Like, I don't know if that, that maybe that's, that's obviously coming from an outsider's perspective, but I'm like, America, what we're like the, the, what the meth lab in the basement, like we're constantly just like, <laughs> creating shit storms and you know rioting and protesting and i don't know i think from from a sports perspective though it's like your male sports and which are largely integrated there's a lot of franchises up here kind of they they swallow up all the air in the room or most of the air in the room as does hockey male hockey um and there's really not a lot of space left and there's just no history of covering women's sports. You know, we were, even we're talking like the NWSL has been around for nine years. And I do wonder again, if Alex Morgan isn't on that couch, does Manishim get interviewed by the Today Show? I really wonder that. 
And the reality is, I think the only player in Canada who could truly get the same thing is Christine Sinclair. You know, we just don't have a history of, of, and what I mean by that, I, I don't mean necessarily related to allegations of abuse. I just mean like actually getting airtime. We just yeah, don't I mean, have. Christine Sinclair is like the best woman's like I, she is the legend of all legends, but she's known as being just like the quiet leader, right? I mean. Yeah, but in our media, there's almost no, like, there's, I worry about our national team when she departs because she's what most people identify with. And we want it to keep getting promoted. We want it to keep being able to to be in the spotlight. And yeah, anyway, that's my, my really long winded reasoning of, I just, we don't have a culture up here in Canada of, 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 of talking or promoting women's sports and there, there's there's actually no women's sports to report on here anyway so that's fair that's a good point yeah. how american yeah. that i just tried to pretend like i was an expert on canada so american literally so american of me just bulldozing i mean i've been to canada i have family there um i am i feel like there's quite a lot of women there as well and i think most of them might have played sports in school or college so the fact that there isn't as much of a professional outlet, like we spoke in the last one of the other podcasts about how um, most of them just head to America or to Europe or, or anywhere, other parts of the world to become professional athletes in so many areas. Um, there, there's really no, uh, there's not as much stigma about playing and about competing here. I don't think we're as competitive, like just from an overt nature, maybe as the, the US are, but I, I'm, I'm aging myself, but I'm 37 and I played soccer growing up and I, there was no stigma attached to it. Um, in the same way that I've talked to, to people in, um, in the U uh, in the UK and even in Europe and even in, in Australia. But, um, at the same time, while there's no stigma to being an athlete, there's also no culture to actually promote it here. And so, as a Canadian, that saddens me because we have a lot of really good athletes and they don't like, they have to do something monumental, like win a gold medal to actually get some airtime and to get some recognition. But it also has a negative effect, which is, you know, we've had a number of national teams where female players have come forward and have, have stated allegations of abuse and it's really gone nowhere in the media. And again, if, if the only person that you have to, come forward and to report this abuse is the organization for which you are working for or are playing under and you can't even rely on the media to try to bring your force forward there's really nowhere i can't think of anywhere else to go but to to ultimately leave the sport and that's my big worry for the majority of of nations where women's voices are already deemed less and women's sports are in the same way as in Canada. It's just not a cultural thing to really talk about it. Um, that this will just keep festering because there's nothing independent to oversee it. And it, that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of adamant about the other. I, I realize that it's probably unrealistic to have an independent agency, but it is one of the no, reasons. No, I agree that it's with you. I, I, yeah. I, I feel like you misunderstood me, but like, I totally agree. I did. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely did. Yeah, no, yeah. I, like, I think it has to be independent, but yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's, like, it's, even, it's, I know this is, you can edit this out, Stuart, if you want, but like, 
this might be a tangent, but I used to, to work in the airline industry. I was a pilot and there is a reason that when you, um, when there is an accident that it is not Transport Canada, which is our federal regulator or our company that does the primary investigation. It's the National Transportation Safety Board. And this is the same in Europe and it's the same in the United States. This is an independent agency that comes in and the reason is to remove conflicts of interest. I would say that abuse and uh, criminality in sport is akin to accidents or, or, or incidents in aviation. It needs to be done independently and players need to have a place to go forward to report this that, where they, they know that they will be where, 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 where they talk to people who are trained and how to, how to um, take in the information, how to um, properly query the information, how to properly investigate the information and where those players know that if they report this, there won't be any repercussions on them professionally or, you know, if it's a semi-professional or whatever, that there won't be any repercussions on their playing career. I have a lot of questions about you being a pilot now. You just casually drop that into this situation. <laughs> um, I have a lot of questions there, but we won't go into that now. Um, yeah, the... well, I want to look intelligent, so <laughs> I try to avoid that topic. Fair enough. Um, and this is That like was a com- pilot joke, by the way. Pilots are seem very intelligent. You have to fly that thing. Anyway, clear. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll get back onto pilot talk at the end of the episode. If uh, you know, we'll we'll come back to pilot talk. Um, with regards to the independent organization, there's a there's a uh, I think volunteer led, maybe even slightly funded led, and this is a departure from sports, but called Good Night Out. They um they help create safer spaces for for nightclubs, for bars, for people who. for women and for men who have been under uh, received sexual harassment or drinks being spiked, things like this. And they are an independent organization and they do so, so much within their limited resources because of it's the, the important nature of it. Um, So as much as obviously this is on a bigger scale and a much more important scale, it needs to happen. Um, It needs to happen as soon as it can. I don't know what the uh, i mean you know you said about the un leading these things catherine with the um so i guess was it the so the, the, so it's one it's a unesco convention and then yeah. um the the u.s office of drug and crimes passed uh, has resolutions within its statutes that cover sport and from there you get the uh, the, the anti-corruption and the anti-match fishing um yeah. abilities and you know these are the, the important thing about those those th- the three abilities of those the the of WADA the agency and the other ones is one they're independent but they're also um, I don't know if it's the proper term but extrajudicial so it doesn't really matter what the laws are in your country these are the laws within sport that you have to respect because you know again even within uh, within certain nations the the laws of what constitutes harassment what constitutes um, abuse may vary from state to state, province to province, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So th- this is kind of like a standard, like this is what we would agreed, you know, and, and upon when it comes to doping, when it comes to match fixing that you have to abide by. And um, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, again, well, like the, there's the, the problem is that the moment in sport from my understanding, speaking to global athlete that, that like they haven't even adopted this within the IOC convention. So if, you know, you, you haven't included the declaration of 
human rights within your convention. And, you know, they've even passed law 50, which kind of in the last Olympics was trying to be, I think it's called law 50 was trying to be used to, to cut athletes rights to protest within Olympic um, venues, you know? So if this is kind of the actions you're taking, I don't necessarily think that this is going to happen anytime soon, but I do think it is necessary because it has to be independent is my main point. It has to be independent and it has to be universal. And this isn't something that's exclusive to, to, to soccer or football. It, it, this, this has to go across all sports and it has to go like every single level. Like we, we, we talk a lot about elite level, but this stuff happens, you know, at semi-pro it, it happens within, within youth. Like we need a cultural change on how we attack this and we need avenues so that the players can be safe. Athletes can be safe. Yeah, I was going to say that the. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that the. Um, I imagine it's the same area of committee, maybe not the same factions, but they stopped Brazil versus Argentina because of Corona. You know, they ran onto a pitch and stopped. That was the government, though. That was literally the Brazilian government. Oh, I thought that. I I thought there was an independent aspect to it as well. Maybe I'm uh, getting. No, it was the Brazilian authorities because they said that four of the players had lied on their entry into the country with regards to quarantine restrictions. Yeah. So, I mean, my point being that things can stop, things can be halted when it's deemed severe enough. So there is that there is areas within some of that that they can look at. But I was also going to bring it back to rights. Obviously, uh, contracts in, in America and I guess technically the Canadian players would fall under that um, banner as well because uh, it's not Canada law, sorry. Um, but, you know, contract rights for a lot of these players as well is so minimal that the fear for bringing anything forward, bring, speaking to the wrong or people will end in termination or the worry for that. Like, because, I mean, it's, it's a lot different from the contract areas of, uh, football in the UK and I'm sure lots of Europe but in the US it's well it seems, it seems very like it can be switched and moved at a moment's notice so there's obviously as we talked about um, players being worried about coming forwards that surely the that should be something that should be looked at as well for job security irregardless of harassment like actual job security for the players fundamental human rights as you mentioned earlier I just want to uh, pivot to another like solution idea, which is the last thing that I'll put forth. Um, you know, language is so important. And I think that there's so much around that's been improved with this upcoming generation with Gen Z around like the language of consent. And like, if someone wants to hug you, you're like not obligated to give them a hug and just like, just things around like touching and like your body and, I don't know anybody, you know, you guys both play soccer, Tom, you play soccer, like growing up coaches were like, if they were showing me a drill, like they would just like touch my body and like move me. And like, there was no, like, can I touch you? Just like little things like that. It starts so young where there's just this sort of like understanding that a coach is just like allowed to touch you in certain situations. And like, we need to start, I don't know putting forth the message that you like can say no to that. <laughs> I mean, or yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it also in skiing where I've seen like literally people try to like manipulate like young children and, and in skiing, it's very technical how to like properly position their body. And 
and I had under, yeah it's it's yeah. under the size of like athletics like your body is like your body being a certain weight your body moving a certain way um that's all under the guise of like performance and that's something that like Meg Lenahan brought up in her most recent podcast but yeah I think like I said just um new sorts of understandings around consent it's not just about for for the women in these positions uh, and the young girls in these positions but also you know with men and whoever just being educated it's both both of those actors are you know um having new understandings about like what's okay and what are boundaries and things like that yeah i mean I, for the prime example for talking about coaching earlier um the FA level one badge, I did it a little while ago and it was purely like tactical. Well, not even purely tactical, purely like here's some drills. We're going to walk you through this, um, this course. Like, so you can get into essentially coaching minors um, as, as, as quickly as possible. And the, the more you think about those kind of words, it's like, that sounds incredibly worrying that okay. like, that we're doing this course. And it's, and there was, you know, like, wasn't again about a little bit about safeguarding a little bit about trying to recognize abuse from um potential abuse from parents or guardians and kids things like this but you know that still doesn't i think this is again when we go to like national associations and bodies who are in charge of like kind of training these i don't think this has been something that's been within their um like really on their minds until I, I would say that it's probably just coming in recently, like their primary motivation when it comes to training coaches is we need to make sure that they understand what to do to, to make sure that who, whichever athlete they're dealing with is properly trained and, and so that they, they know how to play whatever sport they're doing and, and also not injure themselves. I don't think like the things like harassment and, and abuse has, has ever really crossed their mind as being something until very recently that needs to be integral, especially if you're dealing with children to any coaching course. Um, that might be a reason. And, and again, I think it's because until recently, we, we, we really didn't talk about this. Like this was not something that you openly discussed or that, you know, in a way, I almost feel like it was like, oh, well, if that happens, that's a criminal matter and we don't deal with criminal matters. Whereas what's come out with the NWSL and what's come out in a lot of situations, like it's very rare that the abuse actually crosses the line into an area that's criminal, but it doesn't mean that in any way it is okay. You know, you have, you have coaches who have been in positions where they have abused their power, you know, coercion you know sexual mental um who've been racist homophobic that's not necessarily illegal but again it is not okay and and this gray area has been allowed to fester in kind you know not just in women's sports and like men's sports as well like i've seen i used to go i used to go watch my cousin play um football and he had one coach that i could not believe the language that came out of his fans mouth and and you're looking around going how is this acceptable that's the culture you know if you go to any youth hockey game in can in like in canada like, youth soccer a girl's youth soccer like i i yeah. lived in connecticut and the the stuff that people said to the girls like the best way to do it is like try to put someone into a classroom like if you took that football coach um of was it your 
cousin or nephew, like if you took that guy and put him in a classroom in front of kids, like I always think about that as sort of like the litmus test. They've never, ever yeah. been allowed, but there's some sort of way that we've allowed coaches to sort of say whatever they want to kids. So I, yeah, I agree. You guys, I actually got a run. Sorry. I didn't. Know yeah. No, no, no. Thank you so much for your, for your time this morning. Um, yeah, no worries. Uh, okay, so we're back. Thank you so much to Kira for coming on, um, talking to us from all the way from Thailand. It is now 2 a.m. my time, which I guess that makes it nine, just after nine, quarter past nine in both of your areas. So thank you for uh, disrupting your evening plans. Um, we'll talk a little bit more very briefly, um, player rights, the legality of from an outside view of what player rights would you know i cannot speak on player rights honestly no but i mean the the idea of it is this is something that needs to maybe be lee you know for me from an outside country view the the draft system which you, we spoke a little bit about off air just now um it's very much set up for men's financial reward so any of the men's teams that have these drafts and they have these areas, they will get financially compensated uh, at a much higher rate than any of the breakthrough players in NWSL or you know, other women's soccer or women's football areas. Um, so does that need to be looked at in terms of actual longevity for the women's game in the US? You mean the the, the drafts and trade? Um... Well, no, I mean, like, as it, so it's that's not monetarily set up so you can get moved around you get moved around but we're actually in the men's game it's, it doesn't you know you get so much money in the first place that you can be probably set up for whatever area you fall to you know these are the professional contracts difference in money for many of those sports well not is... so i think that the draft and trade system um is ubiquitous to north american sports it's it's commonplace but it in the, on the men's side as well, there there are leagues that exist, like in lower level hockey or, or or even soccer, where you can get traded even though you're not making very much of a salary. But the reality, when you my, my main issue with the with the the fact that a a club can own your rights which is the 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 main thing with drafting and player rights is that it removes the ability of players to truly decide their future if a a club can just keep keep them on and decide what is best for them as an athlete what's best for them as a person and you know in the in the mwsl this system wasn't a system that was decided by the athletes this was a system that was originally in opposed kind of upon the athletes by um, when the the league was originally set up um, as part of the conditions for getting drafted or for signing up with the league. Like this is what you have to do. And I think a lot of us are looking with interest at what the outcome of the first bargaining session will be because the the athletes have um, started in steps for, well, they're, They've been affiliated with the AFL-CIO since I think last month, and they've been in bargaining sessions to sign their first ever um, contract with the league. And I do wonder if if this is an aspect that will stay because um, my main thing is that when you when a club is indefinitely allowed to hold on to the rights to a player, and that player may not necessarily have an avenue to to go sign elsewhere. Um, 
it, it does re- remove a, a bit of freedom from that, that player's career. And if we're going back to the issue of abuse and toxic environments that, you know, there have been clubs in the NWSL where this has existed. So if you're within it and you don't have a right to go elsewhere or you get traded into it, there's really no avenue other than to leave the United States. Um, So, yeah, I think I'm not a fan at all of the draft and trade system. I understand that it's, it's there within North American sports in general um, as an equalizer to try to keep teams competitive. So you don't have really rich franchises that kind of run that, that finish top six every year. And, and some that kind of rotate in and and out or or in, because we have franchises and there's no relegation, they'd always be bottom of the league. Um, But at the same time, um, yeah, it does kind of remove players authority anyway. I was going to say, well, I mean, I'd imagine that most of the teams, it's kind of obvious, league league to league, uh, year to year, season to season, the ones that do better and the ones that don't, based on parts of that. Well, it's so um, funny because we call the NWSL the best league in the world, and that's always because of its competitiveness, right? It's like yeah. any team can be any other team on any given day. No, with this whole thing that's happened in the last week, official best league in the world title it's it's not it cannot be placed placed on it it doesn't deserve it that's for sure i mean the like louisville for sad example their first coach of their women's team has left for cause been fired for cause that's that's a bad marker to start with in their inaugural season um and you know they and footballing Back, you know, merits are, like they've got. <laughs> so I've just titled what I was going to say: footballing merits. Um, they've got a great team by and large, and they've got some, you know, local players, and they've inter- they've attracted talent from overseas even. And yet, the only thing that's going to be now spoke about really is probably that they had to fire their coach halfway through the season, well, towards the end of the season. And that's and again, it's it's the sort of the the black mark on this league that is overshadowing all of the individual efforts by the players on the field. Yeah. Well, like everybody said, this is happening all over the world in women's sport and out of women, out of women's sport. But, you know, there's something to be said for like, you need to talk about it and unearth all this ugly before you can actually move forward. So um, yeah, again, I'm just really hopeful for, you know, Megan Rapino has used the term or probably stole the term from someone else, I think, but like burn it all down. Like, I don't know if it can exist like this, but you know, there's the whole mythology around the Phoenix, right? Like we can burn it down, but there will be something that rises again, that will be just completely of a different, just structure and quality. Yeah. yeah my- well- like with regards to the end of us, like I, I hope it doesn't disappear because there's a lot of, especially players who who sacrificed a lot to try to make it viable and, and get it to this point. But you know, it's clear that not just for the NWSL, but that like players have to be empowered. You know, you you highlighted like this also comes from a financial side um, that there needs to be avenues for them to actually report abuse and historical abuse has to be taken seriously just because something happened 10, 20 years ago when there were no avenues to actually 
disclose it doesn't mean it's any less relevant today. And I also think like we, we, we touched upon it a lot when we were talking about coaching, like there needs to be better training of people in charge. And when it comes to leagues, there actually needs to be better hiring policies so that individuals with patterns of behaviors that are troubling don't get hired in the first place. Like to, to that, if this happens, like you cut it off at its root before they are able to enter, you know, obviously they will, it's a system where sports is a system where abuse is more prone to happen because of the power dynamic, but removing those who have abused of that is, is a necessary first step that we haven't seen yet. Yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's end it there for the evening. The person slash morning. Be sleeping in this room fell asleep on the couch because I'm in the room. So oh, no. I'm going to, need to cut it. I'm so sorry. No, Thank I, you. I, I just got that text a minute ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you so much for both of your time this evening. Um, thank you again to Kiara who came in and chatted away from Timeland. Timeland, this is what it's it's half past two in the morning. I'm words are just like falling right, out Tom, of me in the weirdest way. Um, this will I hope any of anything that I've said has been slightly coherent, or I've just this is just like a weird fever dream. Always a pleasure, guys. Nice talking to you again. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. 